Hello and welcome to Peace of Mind. I'm Paul Gauci, Communications Manager at the National Centre for Mental Health and at Cardiff University's MRC Centre. Today we're very excited to bring you our first live episode. At a recent event we were joined by Professor James Walters, who's Deputy Director at NCMH, and award-winning author Nathan Filer to discuss his latest book, Heartland, Finding and Losing Schizophrenia. So together in this episode, James and Nathan talk about schizophrenia, the diagnosis and questions such as whether it should now be viewed as the extreme end of a psychosis spectrum disorder. Just want to say a big thank you to our hosts, Big Moose Coffee Company, and to everyone who joined us for the night. Hope you enjoy the episode. So good evening everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, just to introduce myself. That is a brilliant start. My apologies. So how quickly can a host make his first cocktail? <laughs> so I'm James Walters. I'm one of the professors of psychiatry in Cardiff University. Um, it's our real pleasure to welcome you tonight. The event is supported by the National Centre for Mental Health. Um, Paul and Katrin uh, over on the stall there. And our thanks go to them um, for helping us with the organi- organisation of, of tonight. It's my pleasure to introduce and welcome Nathan Filer, who's a friend of the centre um, and is obviously going to be the focus of our attention tonight. So the first thing to say is this, so the book's not too wet after that spill. Um, so this is going to form the sort of foundation of, a, of the discussion tonight and this is Nathan's second book. His first book, The Shock of the Fall, most of you may know about but was a multi-award winning book, um, a novel and then for his second book Nathan has gone taken more of a factual edge bringing I think a real insight given his professional background as a mental health nurse but also um, his discussions with um, service users, people with lived experience of of psychosis and schizophrenia, and also um, people working within the field. It's certainly something that I think is unique, and and it needs to be a writer doing this, I think. So we've had a discussion upstairs beforehand about who could write a book like this. And I was chuffed when over Twitter, Nathan said that um, he was undertaking this task. I don't think it was an easy one, and that's something we'll come on to, to discuss, but I think it's, it's a real achievement. I'd really recommend the book. Nathan, would we get started? Yeah. Happy for us yeah. to Well, hello, to everyone. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. And so we thought what we'd do is, is have a discussion about um, how Nathan went about writing the book and, and his thoughts about that. Uh, National Centre for Mental Health is involved in researching psychosis, and hopefully some of, of that work will, will, be av- uh, will be relevant. But also, we'll give you the opportunity to ask your own questions towards the end of the next hour. Um, and, and then we'll be around for a bit um, for people to, to raise any other questions. So perhaps you can start, Nathan, by, by telling us what was the motivation for you, for you writing the book and, and how things started. Sure. Um, can you all hear me? OK. Uh, and hello again. And it's, nice to, it's really nice to be here. Um, yeah, what was the motivation for this book? In in some ways, it came out of um, it came out of my last book. So as you said in your introduction, there um, a few years ago, I wrote a, a a novel called the The Shock of the Fall, which detailed the life of a young man from Bristol who was uh, grieving the loss of his brother, and he was also experiencing some uh, unusual thoughts and feelings. Um, 
I never diagnosed him in that book, actually, but, uh, but, but I gave him the kind of experiences that if a doctor were to meet him, perhaps they would arrive at a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And, um, and that book was out for a few years, and uh, you know, it, it sold very well, and lots of people read it. And quite a lot of people got in touch with me uh, after reading that book to share uh, their stories with me, uh, true stories about living in the shadow of uh, of schizophrenia. Um, we'll get <laughs> the shadow of schizophrenia in the, in the background. The noise in the background. Uh, living in the shadow of, uh, of schizophrenia. I, I, that, I mean, we'll we'll try and arrive at something that, uh, that that feels like a definition of that, because schizophrenia means very very different things to uh, to different people, and that was certainly apparent in the in the emails that I was receiving from readers, sometimes they shared their stories with me because they were similar to the story that I'd written in my novel, uh, sometimes because they were uh, very different. So that was sort of the starting point, really. It, was, it wasn't quite as simple as that. I was also um, uh, meeting people, one giving talks and making radio documentaries and, and all sorts of things. But in any case, I was sort of meeting lots of people and hearing their stories. And, and those stories form the centre of this book. So, so at its heart, it's five uh, personal stories, um, and then there are a series of kind of essays, I suppose, where I think as deeply as I can about what those stories might have to teach us. Okay, good. And you touched on the fact that language is important and certainly contentious within mental health. Would you like to say a little more about that at the outset and, and you know, the term schizophrenia, but also wider language? and considerations in this field? Sure. Um, well, I, I should say first, I mean, I worked as a, I worked as a mental health nurse and for many years, and when I was working as a mental health nurse, I, I probably didn't, well, I definitely didn't think as much as I should have done about, about language. Um, and I used a particular kind of language, which we might broadly call a, a kind of medical language, uh, in order to describe distress. Um, and, and, and I didn't, I, I didn't really question the, the language that much. I, I did, I had to a lot more when writing this book uh, because of what I was hearing from the people that I was speaking to. And something that became apparent very early on is there is no, there is no uncontroversial language when talking about mental illness. And that includes the phrase mental illness. Um, so, so I talk about it in the book, I think broadly speaking, the controversy uh, around the term relates to how medical it feels. Um, and, and I give the example in the book of the, um, I try and take a very, uh, what at first glance would be a very innocuous uh, term, and I go with the, the collective noun for what we might call people uh, accessing mental health services. So if you're a user of mental health services, uh, and you believe uh, that you're distressing uh, and maybe unusual and uncharacteristic thoughts, feelings, and behaviours. They're three very important words, thoughts, feelings, and behaviours, that's what we're always talking about. If you believe that they are an illness, uh, presumably located in your brain, but essentially the same as any other illness, a physical illness, then you might like to think of yourself as a patient. Because if you're the same as those patients in other parts of the hospital or, or wherever, receiving care for, for, for cancer or lung disease or diabetes or whatever, then why would you want to be called something different? However, if you're of the view, uh, as many people are, that even 
the most uncharacteristic and alarming and strange of your thoughts, feelings and behaviours are not symptomatic of an illness, but are something else. Maybe you think that they are uh, a perfectly normal coping strategy, or a coping strategy maybe gone awry uh, in response to uh, unbearably painful life events, uh, or uh, racism, or abuse, uh, undischarged grief. Then to see that wrapped up in a medical language that begins with you being called a patient might feel problematic. Um, and so it was actually in my own nurse training, and I, I heard, do we have any nurses here, or mental health nurses, and student nurses? So, so I, I don't know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that for, for a number of years now, the preferred term has been service user, uh, instead, of, in, instead of patient. And that was precisely because of that, so people pushed back against that medical language, and service user was felt to be uh, the more neutral term. But then we have, and the student nurses will be aware, that we sometimes uh, have uh, in hospital people who are uh, detained in hospital against their will. Uh, perhaps they're medicated against their will. So then does the term service user really cut it for them? And can, we, can we say they're using our services if we've locked them up and we're sort of forcing our services upon them? Uh, and so now there's a sort of growing minority of people who eschew both terms. They identify survivors. Royal College of Psychiatrists is recommitted to patient. So, so the language is controversial. And that's a word as seemingly innocuous as patient. So we can imagine then when we get into words is culturally laden uh, with damning stereotypes of schizophrenia, how important the language is. Um. And just tell us a little bit about the terminology you've adopted for schizophrenia psychosis then, because I think that's... So are you so-called for, for that reason, which is just, just an acknowledgement, really, that there are that there are different views. So I don't talk about schizophrenia in this book, I talk about so-called schizophrenia. I don't talk about mental illness, I talk about so-called mental illness. And that's an, a, an attempt to be respectful uh, to people who find comfort in the language of diagnosis, because many people do, uh, and people who feel injured by the language of diagnosis, because uh, many people do. And I didn't like the term, and I remember, so James was one of the first readers of, uh, of this book, and he uh, read some of the stories in it before I wrote any of the essays. He was one of the first academics that I spoke to. And I remember, and I didn't like the sort of unwieldiness of so-called, and you had reservations about it as well, I seem to recall. Yeah, I mean, my, it's my only reservation, which you rightly ignored, because it worked. <laughs> my only reservation was actually with so-called Islamic State. So it, at that time, when it I had, yeah, it had, it's the had connotation of so-called was with this Islamic State, and I just wondered whether there'd be an indirect stigma attached sure. to that. But actually, I was wrong to think that because I, I think it fits. You know, it, you, the way you reference the term in the book is is appropriate when you so called. So, so yeah, not for the first time you were right. <laughs> <laughs> not for the last time, sorry. Um, okay, and just thinking about diagnosis because I, I think we both agree that that is an important. Um, foundation really a strand running through running through the piece what is your views what are your views about diagnosis and its use and its limitations and its dangers so again as I started to say there I think some people find a great deal of comfort from diagnosis some people find it very very damaging um, there's then a separate question to that which is is that diagnosis scientific because you know you could take a diagnosis like cancer, you know, 
if somebody had a diagnosis of lung cancer and they were given that diagnosis, well, nobody's going to like happily receive that diagnosis. So they wouldn't want that diagnosis. But that's not a reason to not give that diagnosis if it's based on you know, medical facts and it's going to inform treatment. Where things get a little bit more complicated um, with mental health, and I know you have views on this as well, and I'd like to uh, talk about yours too, um, is that um, there isn't the same uh, sturdy scientific foundations behind how we arrive at diagnosis in uh, the field of mental health as there is in many other areas of medicine. And this relates to the fact that in, uh, in mental health, uh, diagnosis is given on the basis of uh, symptoms, so uh, behaviours, thoughts, feelings, what people say, but there aren't these uh, underlying, for the vast majority of uh, what we call the mental illnesses, there aren't these uh, uh, biomarkers, there aren't blood tests or brain scans or an anything kind of objective that we can do uh, in order to uh, in order to confirm that. These are, these are the names we give um, to human experiences that are seen to often cluster together, but they're not more than that. Yeah, and I think I agree. I think you know, from their conception, these were, these were seen as being groups of symptoms or groups of experiences that more commonly occur together in particular people than, than, not, than not. And so they're nothing more than that, which is why they're called syndromes, really. And they're not, they should never be seen. And we, you know, in the research context, we, we work a lot with mathematicians and physicists, and we try and impart to them that these are not, nor should they be seen as being diseases, or I an mean, illness is a, is a less distinct term, but they're not conditions that have an attached pathology or an underlying, or one underlying cause to them, I don't think. I mean, that, that's very clear to me. I do think, though, that, that, the biomarker, so the, a biomarker is something that you can measure in order to tell you about the diagnosis or about somebody's treatment. And the, and the classic one that you use in the book is diabetes. So somebody comes to you and they're very thirsty and they're weighing a lot and you do a blood sugar and the blood sugar is elevated and you can make a diagnosis of diabetes. Brilliant. If you go to 30, 40 years ago and take your example of lung cancer, well, not even 30, 40 years ago, 20 or 30 years ago. And somebody would have presented, they'd have been x-rayed, they'd have had a shadow on an x-ray, which would be suggestive of a number of things. They might have had a bloody cough, and that's as far as you could have got. And, and you then come to a decision from their history and their symptoms about what their diagnosis is likely to be. It's only since you've been able to access the lung and take a biopsy of that sample that you can then get a specific diagnosis. And so I, you know, the, it's important to think about the evolution of the technology <coughs> in psychiatry and how much more complicated it is to arrive at these. I, you know, we won't get to biomarkers for these diagnoses because I think they're imperfect entities. But one of the things that I've used, used before, which is again a bit dated now, is, is that, so we think about tabloid and broadsheet newspapers. And that is, useful to us, it allows us to communicate, we know when we say that, the sort of thing we need, we, we mean. But actually when you get to think about the specifics, there's overlapping features of both those media of, of, of newspapers. That doesn't mean that the description is not is useless, but it means that it's imperfect, and I think that's, that's where my thinking is. And you rightly said about validity of diagnosis, so validity means is it describing 
and something worthwhile, something with an underlying cause that can lead to you getting more information about somebody's future treatment or their likelihood of recovery or whatever. And that, that's very valid. And I think there's limited validity. There is some, um, contrary to what some people say. We know that people with schizophrenia, from, our, from the research we do, are more genetically similar than people um, with other disorders. So that suggests some, albeit limited, validity. The other aspect is reliability, which you talk about in the book as well. I don't know if you want to say a bit about that concept, because that's important in this context as well. Well, your problems with reliability is what one of the things that led to this great proliferation of diagnosis and the, the, the sort of the, the, the DSM and, and all of these things. So, um, you know, it was, de it was demonstrated. And I think there's still a huge problem with reliability now, but there were a series of experiments in the 1970s that showed that, you know, two psychiatrists seeing the same patient sometimes just minutes apart would rely would uh, uh, arrive at two different uh, diagnoses and there were a number of experiments around this weren't there and um, and, and then there were these, you know the really famous experiments like the the Rosenhan experiment with uh, are people familiar with with this with the, the Rosenhan a few, few people nodding there so um, this was a famous experiment in the again in the 70s in the in the United States where um, a group of people got themselves deliberately uh, confined to psychiatric hospitals and they did this by uh, all claiming to hear a voice uh, and they all said the voice was saying the same thing they said it was saying empty dull and thud um, and I don't know how many researchers there were like maybe 15 of them or something and they all went into uh, these different psychiatric hospitals and that's sort of amazing itself now for the mental health nurses and for those of us who work in in mental health the idea that if you heard a voice saying empty dull thud you would get a bed I mean and I'm like, good luck but well, maybe that would be a problem as well. Yeah, they didn't worry about ethics with psychology <laughs> experiments back then, did they? But um, uh, so all these people sort of got admitted, and then when they were in the hospital, uh, they all. Uh, uh, claimed that they were no longer hearing any voices, that was the only time, uh, and uh, they behaved perfectly normally. Uh, the, the problem was uh, the psychiatrist kept these people in hospital anyway, uh, and they were all given a diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizophrenia in remission before they were let out. So all of these things were happening back in the 70s, and it was embarrassing uh, psychiatry. Uh, uh, American psychiatry in particular had a reputation for being particularly trigger happy with the sort of schizophrenia uh, diagnosis. And, and, and all Russia, actually. Oh, really? The height of the Cold War, and America and Russia were certainly over-diagnosing people with schizophrenia. <coughs> sure. For different reasons, I think. And, and then it was uh, this, and some other things, there were other sort of forces at play and political forces at, at play uh, uh, that, that led to uh, the American Psychiatric Association trying to get on top of this, uh, and so it created this legendary uh, document, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Volume 3. There had been two before, but the, the third edition was the one that changed everything, and this is where um, they, they, they gave these very specific uh, uh, descriptions of the, the, the so-called mental illnesses. They created a lot more of them. Uh, it, 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 with the express view that uh, if doctors had this manual and they were looking at somebody, uh, two different people with the same set of symptoms or behaviours, they would reliably arrive at the same 
uh, at the same diagnosis. But again, how these decisions were made for the inclusion and exclusion criteria is when we start to see that the science here is a little bit shaky. So um, I think it was Robert Spitzer was the, was the guy who headed up this, uh, this task force for, for the uh, famous DSM-3. Uh, and one of the diagnoses uh, in it was major depression. So it was the first time that psychiatry had given a, a very clear definition of what depression was. Uh, and it, it, it required that people were feeling, uh, experiencing five symptoms, so including low mood, but, but other symptoms as well, kind of around uh, appetite and sex drive and all these things. Uh, five symptoms uh, from a list of uh, however, however many it was, like uh, 10 or 12 or something, um, and they had to be feeling numb for, uh, for, for, for two weeks. Um, so many years later, Robert Spitzer was interviewed uh, by a journalist who said, so, so, so why is it, why five symptoms then for, uh, for depression? And he said, um, well, four just seemed like not enough and six seemed like too many. <laughs> so, you know, and then, that, and then that became the, you know, what defined depression for the next sort of, for the next sort of 40 years. So, so, so I think some of the criticisms um, against diagnosis are legitimate. Uh, if, 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 notwithstanding your point that yes, biomarkers might be found eventually, but I, but I, but, but in some ways, their psychiatry has not done itself any favours by be and maybe this isn't its fault, but by being th that much more influenced by politics and the politics of the day. So it wasn't that long ago that homosexuality was an official mental disorder. It was only the voice of feminism that stopped. Um, uh, masochistic personality disorder becoming an official mental health disorder and you can read into that that the domestic abuse you're suffering is your fault um, uh, premenstrual syndrome so um, so so I think you know there are, there are pro there are problems with it and that doesn't mean that every single uh, diagnosis is necessarily wrong uh, and it doesn't mean that those diagnoses aren't pointing at biomarkers and I agree that the brain is a much more complicated organ uh, than, for example, the lungs. And so, so, so of course, it's going to be harder to, to, to find those. But there's, um, uh, but there's a lot in the mix and a lot of it's political rather than medical. Yeah. And I think, you know, those diagnostic systems reflect the political systems under which they're derived. And, you know, the reason schizophrenia was overdiagnosed in Russia was for political reasons in the 70s. The reason why there's been this expansion of the DSM diagnostic system is because of primarily American insurance firms and pharma, but you need to be able to code somebody with a diagnosis in order to claim on an insurance. And that's when it's bloody ridiculous, but it's really driven this false medicalization i think of, of diagnosis and, and, and a behavior and i think it's more i think it's more political than even that I, I mean some people argue that it isn't a coincidence that this proliferation in the diag and it really has been a proliferation you know you go like the, each each time the dsm each edition of the dsm would add more and more and more uh, official diagnoses that you or i could be given and some people have argued and i try and make the case in the book um that perhaps it was no coincidence that this happened from the 1980s under Thatcher in the UK, under Reagan in the US, under this uh, sort of global neoliberal agenda that began to characterise citizens as consumers, that began to characterise poverty as the fault of the poor, because it may serve the interests of people in positions of power that a, a, a young millennial 
uh, who is struggling to pay uh, two-thirds of their rent uh, on a zero-hours contract to rent a mouldy room in a, in a shared flat with, their, you know, with, that, uh, with no security there. It may serve the interests of people in positions of political power that that person is suffering from a panic disorder, something that we can conveniently locate inside their brain rather than countenance what the sickness might be elsewhere. And this is a response to... So, so uh, those, those are some of the debates. And I mean, I, don't, I, I, I can see both sides. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think that's a danger. I, yeah, and I, I think we need to be cognizant of that perhaps happening. It's really relevant to something else you talk about in detail, which is about stigma, because that then allows the politicians to say, right, well, we can do a stigma, an anti-stigma campaign, and that means that that guy, we've, we've dealt with that problem that is brought about by these social inequalities. We've dealt with that by, by addressing mental health through anti-stigma. So you've got some thoughts about stigma and where it should sit? Well, I think, you said, I think you said it very well there, yeah. So if we take that same example of that person whose life's falling apart because of these like, very real problems going on in their life, that the government could address some of those problems and should be. Uh, if we could ever move on from Brexit, hopefully we will start to address some of those things one day. Um, so, no, no, I said the Brexit. Oh, God, I said the um, I think there'll be Brexit syndrome, Brexit anxiety syndrome. Brexit, that'll be it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. So 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 an anti-stigma campaign. I think they're you know very well-meaning, and the anti-stigma conversation has been like great in broadening the the conversation. But that person being able to say, I'm able to say I've got anxiety now, and I can talk about that on social media. That doesn't like so. That, so that's sort of great, but it doesn't solve the. It doesn't actually solve the problem of what might be causing that. And so I think sometimes the anti-stigma message has just got us looking in slightly the wrong direction. And that when we're talking about stigma, which is quite a vague term anyway, I don't think anyone knows exactly what it means. When we're talking about stigma, what we could be talking about is discrimination. Um, two of the people I interview in this book, Anne Cook and Dave Harper, uh, make what I thought was quite an eloquent point of um, we, we don't talk about the stigma of being a woman or the stigma of being black. We talk quite rightly about uh, sexism and racism uh, and perhaps we should be doing something uh, something similar with um, uh, with mental health as well. And we need to call well. out discrimination. And call out discrimination yeah, yeah. Where, we, where, where we see it. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested to talk to you, James, as well about, so I mean, I lean, I find myself leaning towards those environmental uh, causes, which I think are really important and I think um, are often ignored. But I spoke to you, I interviewed you in the book uh, as a geneticist and you feature in the book as my, uh, as my expert on, uh, on genetics. And I'm certainly not one of those people who uh, says that has no bearing at all because it very clearly does, doesn't it? And we know that um, uh, you know the most reliable, the most reliable predictor of a person having those thoughts, feelings, and behaviours that we call schizophrenia, um, the most reliable predictor of that is having a first degree relative that, that also that also has that. So, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly bulk of the geneticist, but I suppose I, I'm a research geneticist, but I, I still see myself as a, primarily as a, as a psychiatrist. And the, and the reason I did genetics research is because I did other research disciplines before that. So, you know, I went up and spent time with Graham Thorn Thornacroft, who's, who you speak to in the book about stigma, and thought about that. And he said to me, do you want to do a PhD? And I said, yeah, I'd like to, I need to do that. And I said, um, 
well, you can either get it funded or you can do it whilst you work. And if you, if you do it whilst you work, you can look forward to getting divorced and having a breakdown. <laughs> and I chuckled and he went, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> I thought, OK. And, uh, so I moved away from that and then I went to, did, did a bit of brain imaging research and then health services research, thinking that, you know, the weight of an impact was to think about the design of health services. And with all of those approaches, I felt that they, they, it was very difficult for them to deliver. And it also raises scientific aspects, but what is, you know, what can you attribute to a cause? So looking at environmental risk factors, then often it's not clear whether they're a cause or they're causation or correlation, if you like, or if they're just correlated with some underlying factor. And genetics doesn't do it wholly, but it allows you to do it in in a cleaner sense in that way, because we know that you know, the genes that you're born with don't change throughout your life. And the counter to that is people saying, what about epigenetics? Well, epigenetics, um, which, is, which is molecular changes that can affect your gene expression, the number of those changes that are inherited are, are negligible, actually. And so, so by doing genetic research, I think you can find more about the biological underpinnings of, of these conditions. They're heritable to a lesser or greater extent. So if you look at um, conditions like autism or schizophrenia, then they've got high heritability. Um, and then if you look at conditions like anxiety disorder or depression, then their heritability is lower. Um, and what we're starting to learn is that, so we know from family and twin studies, as, as you rightly said, that these conditions run in families. Most people with the conditions haven't got relatives with, with these disorders, but that... No, but I was going to say that. So even though, so, so I said that sort of the most reliable predictor is having a first degree relative with it, but most people who have this diagnosis have no such relative. So it's not, it doesn't have that sort of same simple kind of genetic inheritance as something like hunting. Exactly, so you use that example and that's, that's right. So what we called Mendelian inheritance, whereby if you carry one or two copies of a particular version of a gene, then you'll either get the condition or pass it on. So it's not that, it's much more complex than that. But we know that, um, that from molecular genetic studies, so looking at m tens of millions of genetic variants across the genome, that people with schizophrenia, um, on average, carry more... With so-called schizophrenia. With so-called schizophrenia. <laughs> uh, or with psychosis. With psychosis, yeah. yeah. We should talk about that as well, yeah. Um, it have, have some genetic vulnerability um, compared to people who haven't got schizophrenia. And, and what that can do, so we know, or we can know, how those um, genetic variants influence proteins in your brain or proteins around your body, and so that can give us clues as to the underlying biology. What it's also enabled us to do, so one of the really challenging things with environmental research, so seeing whether, um, seeing whether social disadvantage um, so we know that people who go subsequently develop schizophrenia are at social disadvantage in a whole host of ways early on in their development. Does that mean it's, it's causing schizophrenia? You can't know that just from observational data, just by looking. But actually with genetics now, you can look to see if, if that is causal. So genetics indirectly is helping epidemiology and environmental research. And it's really... A, I mean, so you, this is in the book you present, I think, in a really balanced way, both the biological and the environmental. But it's a complete 
false dichotomy. Oh, it's it, an interaction, it's isn't it? It's an interaction. And, I, yeah. and increasingly, it's frustrating to me that it would be seen as one, one or the other. It's, you know, if somebody could make an argument against it being genetic, then I'd, I'd like to hear it, because in the literature, they just they don't stand up. When you've got converging evidence from several sources, then that's pretty convincing evidence. And until somebody mounts a, a, a valid argument against that, I think genetics is part of it. But genetics, you know, is part of a lot of things. That doesn't mean that it's a main causal element. It means that it's it's just an element of, of, of vulnerability to these conditions. Yeah, and I think we talked about it, didn't we? And uh, when I was interviewing the book, that we could see our genes as a, a, a another sort of a risk factor or protective factor rather than rather than being deterministic. I'm sort of conscious that we've used lots of phrases now and maybe not even tried to define some of them because we talked about psychosis there. Um, and I don't. I mean, I don't know who everyone, people in the audience necessarily would know what that what that term means. Maybe we should go back. A, should we go back a step and try yeah. and define and try and define what that? Because one. So so this diagnosis of of, of schizophrenia, which is, um, you know, one way or another, it's a it's a way that people mostly suffer. You know, it's a, I think it's an unpleasant thing for, for most people, a very frightening thing, which has a range of, uh, which has a, a, a whole array of thoughts and feelings associated with it. But the, uh, the defining feature tends to be this thing that we call psychosis, doesn't it? Yeah. And, um, and psychosis, again, is not that well defined as a, as a term, but at its broad and most simplistic, it describes the loss of contact with uh, reality, uh, or at any rate, what most people perceive of uh, as uh, as reality. So, and, and psychosis. I don't think anyone would say that psychosis is a uh, a disease in itself. No one would say that, even disease model people. Um, but it can certainly be symptomatic of disease. So it's a uh, it's the a, a common feature in most forms of dementia, for for example. Um, uh, and it can also be something that we choose. Uh, to have so if anyone uh, uses recreational drugs, you don't have to put your hand up. But if you if you do use recreational drugs, then uh, then you might choose to uh, be detached from reality. At the you know if you try LSD and it doesn't radically distort your experience of lived reality, then you want to find a new dealer, don't you? Really? So and your money back. And importantly, um, it can also be. Uh, I think brought on maybe through an interaction with uh, genetics, but it can be uh, a, a response to e extreme, uh, extreme trauma, and it and it tends to be experienced through uh, two things: either uh, hallucinations uh, or delusions. Uh, so, hallucinations being the experience of seeing or hearing things that, that other people can't, uh, so a perception without external stimulus. Uh, and delusions having a fixed belief uh, that is not amenable to change in the light of conflicting evidence. And interestingly, the way we talk about how the DSM and these diagnostic criteria change things with each edition, uh, a delusion used to have to be a fixed and false belief that is not amenable to change, but we've gotten rid of that now. So it's a fixed belief that's not amenable to change in light of conflicting evidence. So who isn't delusional occasionally? Uh, I mean, we probably are, and then and then it's a question of degree yeah. again. Yeah, indeed. And I think, so the way that services 
um, mental health services in the UK have gone, in part in reaction to the sort of negative connotations of the term schizophrenia, is, is to move towards dedicated services, specialist services, and there's some people in the audience that work in these services, for those with psychosis and, and so-called early intervention services. So trying to identify and support people at, their, at the onset of, these, of, of psychosis. Sure. Um, the thinking being that the earlier you can, you can help and support people, be that through medication or through psychological support or through social support, the earlier you can do that, then the better their chances of long-term recovery and, and functioning. And I'm a big supporter of early intervention services and have from my days of nurse, nursing have friends who've worked on those services. I think they're absolutely vital and important, crucial, crucial and vital the same thing, aren't they? Uh, the, uh, and uh, yeah, that help a lot of people. There is something to interrogate a little bit with, with them as well. So early intervention services came about partly as a uh, a response to um, to a view that uh, schizophrenia was a progressive brain disease causing uh, a sort of shrinking of the of, of the brain, and that the earlier uh, the earlier this was treated, uh, you would stop this uh, you would stop this progression. So there are, there are some problems with the underlying premise, well, that premise was, there. No, that was so the services came about because there was this observation that the longer people went whilst they were psychotic until they were treated, the worse they were. Oh, okay, back. okay. Then somebody came up with the theory behind that. Oh, uh, okay. The longer the people okay. were psychotic, the more degenerative. Okay. The well, I'll stand. Was. I'll stand. And it's actually there, it's been proven yeah. not to be the case. Okay. But that doesn't, you know, take away from the fact that the services. People experiencing psychosis. Oh gosh! Look, they need. Look, I, I've said, and I say that, and I, yeah, absolutely. And I say this, in, and I do, like, I do not disagree with that. And I say in my book, you know, if my, if somebody that I, you know, if one of my children was, you know, when they reach their teenage years, if they become psychotic, I will be scared shitless, and I will want them to be getting help as soon as possible. And that's what, and that's what early intervention services offer. Um, what I was, what I was leading to, though, with that, with that discussion. So notwithstanding, if I. Uh, slightly misunderstood uh, what led no, to you're this. right, but it was just that that wasn't the sort of driver behind the services being developed. Sure, okay. Um, there's still, and we, we talked about this, um, a, a potential concern, not with early intervention, because I know they do lots of other work as well, but, but with um, uh, this shift, which is partly a result of uh, kind of financial pressures as well, actually, like if people end up on uh, on the wards, so not in an early intervention yeah, community yeah. team, but, yeah. but but on the wards, um, you know, the pressure for beds is, is such that we've got to, you know, get them treated and out very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and what I'm getting to with, with all of this is that we possibly are starting to medicate people uh, too early, aren't we? And then, and then people are, are perhaps kept on uh, these medications for for, for too long, um, which wouldn't be a problem if these medications didn't themselves have a sort of horrible litany of of side effects and yeah. um, uh, and other potential problems to do with. And, and so, an eloquent expression of that happening is that so early intervention has moved to the stage or some services have moved to the stage of trying to identify people who are in at what they call at-risk mental states so before people are psychotic and there have been trials in that group of people 
um, of medications, and you know they've been industry supported. They've all been negative, which is good because <laughs> it shows that it doesn't work. Yeah. But what's that as sport? So there was there was an effort um, in the states as part of DSM five to bring in this diagnosis of at-risk mental state for psychosis. Now, that is a non-diagnosis. You're at risk of something. And we're really poor at predicting, because they're really non-specific signs, we're really poor at predicting who can go on to get, psycho to get psychosis. And it, yeah, it was a real problem. I'm glad to say at the psychiatric conference, the attendees shouted down the person in the DSM that was trying to do this, and it didn't get in. It's in the, it's in the back. Um, part of the manual, but it didn't get in as a recognised diagnosis. And again, that was almost wholly driven by the American insurance system, because people were seeing people in these actress states, but weren't able to claim the money for, from insurance from, from seeing them. Yeah. Should we talk about treatment and medication? Yeah, okay. Um, so, because I think people with this, uh, with this diagnosis, um, or with psychosis as a, as a diagnosis, um, very few people would go into mental health services um, and not at least be, w with psychosis as a symptom, and not at least be offered antipsychotic medication. I mean, and that was a view, and certainly from my time as a nurse, but also like everybody I spoke to uh, in this book, it is still the, the, the dominant form of, uh, of treatment. Um, but there might be some problems with it and particular well so we know there are some problems with it and we know that some of those problems relate to the the uh, the side effect profile of uh, of these medications um we also know that these medications can be very helpful uh for some people and this is something i try and uh talk about in 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 the book and unfortunately from the people who got in touch with me whose stories i tell uh i heard very different stories about that so i speak to somebody uh, in the book, a, a journalist, an uh, amazing person actually, called uh, Erica Crompton, um, and I tell her, uh, I tell her story within the book, and she uh, experienced uh, lots of psychosis when she was in uh, in her twenties, uh, had all sorts of terrifying uh, beliefs. She thought she was Britain's most wanted uh, criminal. She thought she had a listening device. It was placed inside her womb during a, a, a smear test, and the, the uh, MI5 were tracking her like really 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 terrifying stuff um and and managing trying to manage a career as a journalist with all of this going on i mean she was she's an extraordinary person um she uses these antipsychotic medications uh she finds them extremely helpful uh she's pro medication uh and they've allowed her to and they allow her uh to to, to function in, in a very high state that she uh that she does I spoke to another person in, in the book who uh, doesn't use uh, her, so Erica Compton is her real name, some people chose not to use her real name, so I spoke to um, a, a woman called uh, Claire, um, or she's called Claire in the book, uh, and her son, uh, Joe, was placed on uh, lots of antipsychotic uh, medications uh, in his uh, teenage years. Uh, he interestingly had a different uh, diagnosis. He had a diagnosis when his subtypes called hebephrenic schizophrenia, and we can maybe talk about that, though it doesn't exist anymore as an official diagnosis, but, um, uh, but it's characterised less by those psychotic experiences uh, and more by uh, kind of social uh, withdrawal, incongruent mood, uh, uh, some uh, sort of behavioural things. Um, 
Anyway, he was placed on this medication. He put on loads and loads and loads of weight, uh, became very, uh, very unwell, uh, for physically unwell for lots of reasons. Uh, there were other things going on. He was drinking heavily. Uh, he died alone in his flat in Cardiff uh, at the age of, uh, of 19. And, and his mother absolutely believes that this medication, which he, which he took, many different types of antipsychotics, which he faithfully took, uh, contributed to his death. So the range of feelings about these drugs is that, is that broad. And I think in writing about these things, and that for those of us who are clinicians, we need to, uh, we need to respect that and, and know that these things mean very different things to, to, uh, to different people, help some people, harm some people. But they do, the people that they harm, they are harming. They are those side effects. They are not, I, I don't like the term side effects actually, you know, because sometimes these, what we call the side effects, are the main effects of these drugs because they often don't really seem to deal with the psychotic experience that well at all, but they definitely do make you put on weight and they definitely, you know, these are the main, um, and of course, you know, these drugs were, um, so, so the, the earliest antipsychotic drugs, uh, chlorpromazine, was sort of the first one developed in the in the 1950s. It was originally developed for surgical patients in order to have a, a kind of sedative effect on them, to put them into a twilight state. So to call that effect now a side effect, when it was the very thing the drug was developed for, starts to feel starts to feel a little bit rich, doesn't it? Um, so I don't know if you have more views on that. No, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I think so. So again, working with people who are in a first episode of psychosis, medication on average helps people and most people require some medication in order to recover. I, I believe and the evidence suggests that. But as you say, it harms people and it harms, you know, and it, it's a really nuanced decision. You've got to weigh up what are the perceived beneficial effects with what those negative effects are. But seeing somebody as we see quite often, you know, young women and men who can put on three or four stone, you know, 10, 20 kilos in weight in one or two months on these medications is bloody heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. and, but that's as good as the medications we've got at the moment. So the decision is you try and manage that as best you can, you try and bring in other interventions to limit the, the, the effects of those adverse effects or limit the adverse effects themselves. But then you can often come to the decision about whether to, to continue that medication or not. And that's something we definitely need to do in partnership. It's pointless us as health professionals telling somebody they've got to take something, it doesn't bloody work, and they'll either not take it and not tell us, or they'll just say I'm not taking it. Sure. So we need to do it. Well, I don't know, but I don't know if that's true. I think some people do faithfully take it, and I think actually Joe is an but example. But if we're telling of somebody... them, my point is, if we're telling them, then I don't think I don't think it works. People will take them if they want to take sure. them. We need to work with them to, to weigh up that that decision. What and and something you said in the in the. Uh, in the book, because I think I quote, quote you as saying it, is one of the issues is we've got a, a, a real chasm in the research at the moment about, so there's lots on when to start people on these medications, although again, I think probably for political reasons and for funding reasons, we do start people on these drugs sooner. I remember when I started as a mental health nurse, which is only, you know, like in the year 2000, it was common practice when people were admitted to an acute psychiatric ward that they would be on no medication for two weeks. That was common practice. Mm -hmm. Two weeks, no drugs at all. I mean, maybe some benzos, but two weeks, no, no drugs in order to see yeah. if things would settle down, if they're in accord. That is like pretty much unthinkable 
unthinkable now because the pressure on beds is so much that people have got to and then there isn't this research at the other end about when to stop taking these medications so people are on them for years and those side effects aside I, I think um, some of the r like really interesting questions around around that is around this concept of dopamine supersensitivity uh, which is a bit technical but we can try and drill into it because I do think that it's I do think that it's interesting um, so so these antipsychotic drugs uh, and please step in here if I'm not explaining it as well as I should um, but broadly speaking though we don't know exactly how they work because we don't know exactly what causes psychosis uh, in terms of we don't know what's happening in the brain that causes psychosis but we do know uh, that these uh, drugs block uh, a certain receptor in the brain, a dopamine receptor called the D2 uh, receptor. And it's actually the fact that antipsychotic drugs uh, were useful, seemed to be useful for people who were psychotic, and because we knew that it blocked uh, dopamine, that led to the theory that psychosis might be caused by dopamine sort of dysregulation in the first place. So these drugs are blocking those dopamine uh, uh, receptors, and maybe that's helpful for some people in quieting down the psychosis. But the body responds to that when it's got these blocked receptors by growing more receptors. And of course, you know, we kind of know this even without looking at it because it's the very reason why people, when they're on these medications, they need to be put on higher and higher doses in order for it to have uh, the same effect. You're not sure? You're, or, or, <laughs> okay, okay. Go on. People are put on higher and higher doses, but they, it hasn't been proven that they need higher and higher doses. Okay. Okay. So, you know, a lot of people can be maintained on really minimal doses. Okay. It's just that, again, there are influences in play to, for people to be put on to higher and higher doses. Okay. There isn't any good evidence, I don't think, that people require higher doses in order to respond. To in order to in respond fact, to the same. There's evidence to the contrary. If you don't respond above a certain dose, you're very unlikely. You're unlikely to respond at all. Okay, well, that's interesting. Are you sympathetic with this idea of dopamine supersensitivity, yeah. though? Because yeah. lots of, yeah. And I, but I think it does apply. I mean, so, I should, so I should kind of explain what it is, because otherwise, um, so, so, so this theory then, in that case, that we, don't, that we don't know, and it's hard to test for reasons we can talk about, is that uh, so more, of these, uh, uh, more of these receptors uh, grow, in any case, uh, and then, uh, and so then, if we stop people then taking the medication, they then got more of these receptors uh, in order to uh, 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 for this uh, uh, in order for this dopamine to hit, uh, and so this results in a kind of rebound uh, psychosis. So that's one of the one of the fears, isn't it? But the but the further fear is, is it possible that one with this dopamine supersensitivity that people get to a point where they're relapsing even when they're on uh, the medication and they are more prone to relapse, they become more prone because of this than they would have been if they weren't started on the medication at all. And that's the question. That, and lots of people that I spoke to, were uh, lots of the senior academics that I spoke to, were very sympathetic with that as a, as a notion. I think it's Joanna Moncrief and people who sort of were positing it. But everyone I spoke to seemed sympathetic uh, with it as an idea. But it's impossible to test, because in order to test it, you would need to create uh, you need to sort of have a control group, wouldn't you? And you need to have people who have psychosis but are not put on yeah. antipsychotic drugs, and that's unthinkable in today's yeah. climate. So, yeah. um, no, and I, I think it can be an issue, but it's very difficult to establish whether it, whether it's true or not. As you say, the majority of people, you know, thinking about the clinical research side of things, can stop medication without having a rebound of psychosis if you do it cautiously. 
most of those people get unwell down the line, unfortunately. But what we don't know, as you say, is is how best and in whom we can we can advise them that they don't no longer need to take medication. And it's you know it's not in the company's interest to, to do that. It would need large scale government funding to answer answer that question. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Joanna Moncrief because she's a really contentious figure in psychiatry, as you as you know. So, so how how did you select the people that contributed to the book? How did I select? So yeah. so so well as I say the personal story. Well, I've talked a little bit about. Um, uh, the, the, I, I, I do want to stress because the conversation and maybe it was inevitable because of you being an academic and where we are that we're talking about lots of uh, the, the yeah the sort of academic considerations but the book the majority of the book is about, pe- is about people and, it, and, it, and it's personal stories but these um, uh, but I do speak to lots of experts and I selected them by just sending out emails to absolutely everyone and I spoke to whoever got back to me I mean how do you uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> how do you do these things but I did find that fortunately the fact that I'd written the shock of the fool I think a few of the experts I spoke to said they wouldn't have spoken to me if I had if they hadn't read that book Um, because you know why would they speak to me they've got people getting in touch with them all the time and they've and they've yeah got busy jobs so so I did find that that opened a few doors you would have spoken to me though wouldn't you I'd speak to you anyway (laughs) we used to work together when did we work together years and years ago ten years ago ago, we are at Bristol University when I was your research assistant (laughs) so we should say as well that you you lecture in creative writing and and sort of the technique of writing that's something you know, I would be useless writing something like this, but can you just tell us a bit about the process of writing the book, how you went about it, uh, you know, even down to what your day was like when you were writing it and then how you brought it together? Because I think one of the most impressive things is that you've interviewed all these different people, you've got these really powerful, and they, as you say, the, the most impressive thing is the stories and, and how how heart-rending a lot of the stories are, I think. But you managed to bring that together, so I'm just interested in how you went about doing it. Well, I, I mean, I approached the book as a writer, first and foremost, so though I am a nurse and uh, I've worked in mental health, I did approach it as a writer, and I met people to to hear their stories and then to think about the best way that I could capture what they were telling me on the page. Uh, it, 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 in a way that would make it accessible to, that would be true to their experience and make it accessible to um, to readers. But it was, I mean, it's a really lengthy process. So each person that I spoke, you know, I interviewed everybody, of course, and spent many, many hours interviewing people and met all of the contributors uh, many times. And then I would write, so I would come away with maybe 10 hours for for each story of, of audio and then try and wrestle that into something that looked like a version of their story and then it was this really scary moment for for me each time of going back to them and saying okay I've now written what I think might be your story um, and then sent it to them um, and and then that was different as I said there were five main stories that I tell within it and a couple of the people felt straight away I mean, you know, I was so happy actually because they really seemed to feel straight away they'd been heard, that their stories were there, that they, they, they you know, they were very, very happy with them. Um, but that wasn't the case for, for everyone. And for some people, I sent the story and um, 
they felt that I hadn't got it right and they didn't feel that their story was properly represented and they didn't feel that that's what they meant when they said that and they and you know and absolutely fair enough so then they would come back and then I would do another another draft with with one of them that process um, took a year of going you know I mean it result it was about five drafts but over the over the course of a, a year in order to in order to get that right and and that felt really important to me and I and I made clear to all of the contributors that um, and, you know, until they were happy, it wasn't it wasn't going to be in the book, and they could write to the last. You know, I would do as many many drafts. It didn't. That was on me. I wanted. You know, I was grateful for the story. I would do as many drafts, and then if they, no, of course, it reaches a point when when it's printed, I can't do anything about it now. Uh, but you know, to really try and keep that um, power, I suppose, yeah. with them that is their that is their story. Um, and I think that comes across. And it's great. That you do. I remember we met for the first time. For the Cardiff stalwarts, the interview was in the Falafel Kitchen on Cruise Road, which has gone now, sadly. But it was we were munching on these falafels, and you couldn't hear anything we said, so we had to re-record it. But I think that back and forth, I certainly appreciated, and comes across in the, in the stories from from the people that you described. But then I, I discovered, of course, but when you spend that long with people and when you're interviewing them, like when you when you go and hear somebody's story, and it was such a luxury, really, to in some ways be able to do that that I never had as a mental health nurse. You know, mental health nurses here, you don't get to spend like 10 hours hearing somebody, of course you don't, you know, the pressures are so much um, on time. But to, when, when you're that closely involved in hearing somebody's story, you do become a part of that story as, as, as well, you know, and um, uh, yeah, and form relationships with, uh, you know, with, with, with those people. But there was the, the, the mother that I was, um, that I was telling you about Claire, you know, she, um, when she was telling me her son's story, she had a, a, a big box of, um, uh, a doc, uh, she had a, so her son had died 10 years ago, he died, and she had this uh, box of official documents and uh, letters and mental health tribunal reports and the official coroner's report and all of these, all of these things, and she had it, but she couldn't bring herself to, um, couldn't bring herself to look at it. Um, and, uh, and so she thought a good way of sort of getting rid of it, but still sort of keeping it, would be to hand it over to me to help with my research. So I looked through this box and it was very helpful, there's no denying, you know, I got to see all these nursing reports, doctor's reports, the, you know, all this stuff. Um, but I found other things in it that, um, uh, that she didn't know were, that she didn't know were there, that I thought, oh, actually she would like to see some of, some of these things. Shall I finish by doing a very short reading that just describes yeah, that, that describes that bit? Shall I just, as I, as I say, I probably, maybe I could just finish by doing, um, and then we could, but I'll just do. Five minutes question. Yeah, it's just, I do very, um, the box is mostly filled with the reams of hospital notes, medication charts, police reports, bail applications, care plans, and various other documents that followed Joe through the final years of his life, along with the official inquests and correspondence that sought to make sense of his death. There are other things too, including things that Claire hadn't realized were there. There were more photographs of Joe, a certificate he was awarded upon graduating from middle school, and some positive school reports from when he was little, including one from a grade three, uh, they were in America, hence the American terms, including one from a grade three teacher expressing how much she enjoyed teaching Joey. I tell Claire about these on a subsequent visit, and, we go, and on a subsequent visit, we go through the box together to remove them. She wants to put them in another box she's keeping. 
This one is smaller and much less full. He had so few possessions in the end, she tells me. Nothing really salvageable. The flat was such a mess. She's kept his fake Zippo lighter, complete with cannabis leaf embossed on the side, a tobacco tin, wallet, mobile phone. There's a small trophy that he won with a youth basketball team as a little boy. There's some dried foliage taken from the wreath at his funeral. With the new things added, the box appears fuller. That looks better, doesn't it? Claire asks. It does. And I feel both utterly heartbroken and profoundly privileged to share in this moment. Also in that box is a letter to Joe, written by Claire. You are always hovering in the background of my thoughts as I wake in the morning and go to sleep at night. But I'm writing this now as I realise your 21st birthday is coming up and I don't know what I'm going to do on that day. Since that awful moment we found you dead nearly 18 months ago, I have realised I have been grieving for the handsome, happy and exuberant boy that I lost to mental illness for much longer. I know you'll agree that your teenage years were hard on all of us, most especially you, but you never recognised the devastating extent of the heartache you caused me. On that day, the worst happened. I was able to stop worrying about what would happen to you. And among the terrible pain and sadness, there was also relief. After all, it could have been much worse, and it had been many times in my imagination. Once, you said if I chose to worry, it was my problem, not yours. Your selfishness greatly frustrated me. You didn't often realise anything was wrong with your life, but it's hard to be close to you and to watch the rapid deterioration in your personality and intellect and the complete lack of purpose and ambition left within you. My aspirations for you dwindled until my only aim was that you were reasonably content and did no harm. You were so big. Whatever they say, your massive weight increase was caused by the antipsychotic medication you depended on and difficult to love unconditionally near the end that I failed to realise, or wouldn't admit, just how vulnerable you were. So the main reason I want to write was to say sorry. I did the best I could with you and for you at the time, but it wasn't good enough, and ultimately I failed to protect you and keep you safe. I wish I could go back in time and do things differently. I also wanted to ask you what happened at the end. It's still not clear, despite an inquest. It seems as if you fell and banged your head, and then your heart just gave up, your body weakened by alcohol, and the medication you took faithfully, and which I now wish you hadn't. I hope with all my heart that you slipped away quietly, and with some clarity and relief. I'm both glad your life as it has, as, I'm both glad your life as it was has ended, and forever full of sorrow that you were gone. All my love, Mum. So I think we need to, like, in the conversations, we have ab abstract conversations about diagnosis and about all these things. I feel like it's so important for us to remember. And I don't think you forget. I don't think, you, you know, um, but is it important that we don't forget that, you know, when we're talking about these things, what we're really talking about is people. And, sorry, I get a little bit... Um, so this diagnosis of hemophrenic schizophrenia uh, that, 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 that Joe had, um, that doesn't exist anymore. So we talk about like, you know, mental health diagnoses that never made the cut between DSM-4 revised and, uh, and DSM-5. And yet Joe still had that life uh, and Claire con continues to live with the, you know, with the concrete, uh, unalterable truth of his, uh, of, of his death. So, um, so I think these other conversations are really important, uh, really important, but it's also important to remember that they, you know, they exist in the abstract and we must never forget uh, uh, 
that these things are things people are experiencing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And I think however you conceive of these things, then what we want to do is understand these experiences better and this book helps us do that. And I thank you for writing it because it was a brave thing to do and you've really accomplished something worthwhile, I think, Nathan. Okay. And thanks for coming tonight as well. So, so yeah, thanks. Questions? Does anyone want to ask Nathan anything? Yeah, can I ask a question? Yeah. Do you believe that uh, there is such a thing as stigma in society that affects people with mental health issues? Well, I think with all these things, it's about defining the terms, isn't it? So I don't. I. I mean, I. I don't think there's really agreement on what what um, stigma means. I think it's a really woolly. Mm. I think it's a really woolly term. It's quite a vague term. Um, it's not. I, I, in this book, I, I think I settle on a, a definition that stigma refers to a person's internal sense of shame yeah. uh, and inadequacy due to their due to their circumstances, which is why I then feel it's uh, make make the case that sometimes I think we're talking about stigma when we should be talking about discrimination because the problem. Uh, might come might come from the outside, but but you know whether it whether it exists depends entirely on how we want to on how we want to define well, it. I had a psych, uh, consultant psychiatrist once tell me that it didn't exist. Okay. It didn't exist. I was in a psychotic state at the time, and was accepting things from so-called experts. Okay. So, I mean, I, if you ask people who have had these experiences, then one of the things they often say is that the most difficult thing to deal with is other people's attitudes towards them. And you say in the book that, that somebody told their mother and, and sister yeah. that they were more frightened of her than they were understanding of her, if you like. And that, for me, is the sort of sharp end of stigma, if you like, that it stops people relating to, to people when they're experiencing dreadful thing. Yeah, I think it was, I think exactly right, and that's the that is the story of Erica, that that journalist, and it was exactly that when she told uh, when she told her sister and her mother, and they yeah they didn't know so you know they'd not sort of read about these things and didn't know them, and they had all of the stereotypes in their mind and considered her to be suddenly you know this dangerous person. She also thought that about herself, you know, she had all these stereotypes in in her mind, and when she first got her. Um, uh, diagnosis when she first saw you know uh, psychosis associated with her medical notes she suddenly thought oh gosh am I dangerous am I if I have children will I kill my children you know she had to, you know because these were the this was her understanding of this from reading the tabloids and yeah. and so forth growing up so um, so yeah like so if we take um, if, if we take uh, that as the as the definition of stigma it's a perfectly good definition of it then gosh it exists and it's extremely damaging yeah. and I think um, you know I don't speak for you but my feeling is that what we were, what we were saying as well is that for government and for policymakers it's often easy to say right we've done stigma that's mental health and, uh, and yeah, we've, you know we've solved it yeah and it's just the absolute start of a conversation and I think you know, not royalist anyway, but the, what the royals have done is allow people to start having open conversations, and that, in the long term, will be a good thing. But it's not sufficient, and it's it's just the start of hopefully a, a more productive conversation. Um, what do you think the next stage is? So um, this is my first degree relative. Um, I experienced my dad when don't want to say dad when he was sectioned when I was seventeen. 
Um, I've lived with that, and then I've got to the point where I've now developed psychosis when I was 31, I've had two episodes. So I have children, um, and I also work for a massive employer, so 65,000 people related to government, and I work in a section where we're trying to break the stigma of mental health and things. But what is, is you two sat up there now, and I can ask you this question, that's our big plea with this 65,000 people that I'm trying to advocate against, is I want to get past just awareness. I don't, I want people to do something more. What do you think, do you have any insight as to what I, we can use to break that discrimination? What are, because we've done in our organisation, we've got to the point of awareness saturation, where probably not with schizophrenia or psychosis, and it's really interesting to me, so I've got a neuro condition as well. I'm much more happy to go up and say, yeah, I'm dyslexic, yeah, I've got this neurological condition. I don't always tell people that I've had psychosis. No. I do now, but it was much braver. It's much more where my dad sits in terms of, do I break out of that stigma? Mm. So do you think there's anything or any current research or things that I can take back to my organisation and say, look, we can do this, we can, we can get further than just awareness? I think for society what we need to do is, is have parity for mental health mm. services but also in wider society so we're spending on social support for people um, but also on the services in an equivalent way and that just is nowhere near vested interest research but research into mental health is so 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 underfunded compared to the impact it has and that's something very practical we could do so for for every pound the government invests in research the public then creates three pound for cancer research through charities for mental health is 0.1 of a pence mm. so you know society needs to see this as being a more important um, priority I don't I mean, that's yeah no I completely I completely I just completely agree with that yeah and I and that's an interesting term that sort of awareness saturation because I do yeah I, I, I get that and again like maybe um that perhaps isn't the case for you know across the, across the board. But so we've got mental health advocates who've trained yeah. all these people. We've got minding, and we do things. Yeah. And you know, it's mental health awareness week in a couple of weeks now. And but that is that saturation. Actually, how do I stop? You know, still our people who are off with stress-related illness is yeah. it runs at twenty percent annually. Yeah. yeah, we can't. You know the. We, you know, I don't think it's something that we've sort of like the societal. And, and it, well, it does, and a lot of that needs to be sort of upstream, doesn't it? In a way, so I think some of these issues—they're not things that psychiatry or the mental health charities are going to. Uh, you know, they're dealing with the people who come to them because their lives have fallen apart. But but how do we stop people's lives falling apart in the first place? And this is why I myself tend to lean towards more of those environmental uh, sort of causes um, because they're the ones that, on the face of it, we should be able to do things about already. Like we should be able to implement policies already that deal with some of like the terrible like poverty and inequality that we've got that we. Uh, that, that, that causes people to become so uh, so poorly in the first place. This is place. Where it's really important because you know I'm not going to advocate against any of that. I think that is actually more. Oh no, we need both, don't we? Yeah. We need both. But yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean no. that we shouldn't be investing in the research as well. No. Research is, is no. without value. No. And that, we need to do it all. Yeah. 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 But I, I think you're right. It's not. It's, it's like the environment. <coughs> it's easy to tick the boxes, but you've actually got to Im implement policy that means some sacrifice and it'll mean a company, you know, losing some staff time. But if you're going to put in 
place things to support people's mental health and mental well-being, then then there's a cost to it. But it you know the benefit of that should outweigh that cost. Yeah. All the time. So yeah, we're we're more to your point. Um, I don't know how to phrase this question. Um, just in your really established sort of positions to set up front there, what's um, given what I've said about my our history and our family genes um, as a gene- genetic link, what's are the best environmental things that I can do to protect my children, or you know? We could, we could perhaps have a conversation yeah. after, yeah. But the, you know, the, the general things that I mean, as Nathan says, you know, if if you're doing it at a governmental level, it would be you know ensuring people have a caring, non-abusive yeah. environment. Well, and the fact can I can I say the fact you asked the fact you asked that question to me suggests you're probably already doing quite a lot of the things to protect <laughs> your to protect your children because you're thinking about that and you're thinking about their well-being and you're one of I don't know do these children exist yet or are these potential yeah 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 okay yeah you know so you're thinking about that and you're providing one of these caring. Uh, uh, households. Now, of course, that doesn't in itself, and this is where. But that's it, the, not to belittle my dad, he sat here. And he did. My mum and dad provided. Did and this, okay, and so this exactly. Clear. So so we need to be so we, so we need to be clear on on something. So uh, one very important thing to say: the science is not at a point where any mental health practitioner or researcher of any stripes can say to an individual person what caused them to become unwell in whatever way like we cannot do that James wouldn't claim to be able to do that no we cannot do it like we can just look at like these big trends in there and that's where those things around like the you know the link with family and and, and so forth is is concerned and then there are risks we'll ever be and we might never be able to do it and so then we're talking about like risk factors and protective factors so a risk factor in this case might be always might might be for you that this runs in your family that your father's had this experience that you had this experience a protective factor might be the kind of home that you're able to produce and then there'll be you know these other things of course that you don't control that come from the that come from the environment as well and we know you know so uh, smoking cannabis and things like this you know these things that can have a that, that can have a, a, a big impact on uh, on psychosis but I do think the fact I maintain the fact you're asking that question and thinking about that suggests to me that you are already like going a big way towards creating uh, that kind of uh, nurturing and supportive uh, protective in, in environment but I also agree with James we can maybe talk about it a bit more and I'm slightly <laughs> cautious with a clinical hat on to, to say much in that sense but you know we've we've set up a clinic to talk to families exactly about these these questions because I think people are increasingly having these questions and so um, that's something that in South Wales is, is now available to perhaps talk about that. We also have a family member that experiences psychotic episodes and I was just wondering what your opinion was and what do you recommend in terms of how best to support them and how we should behave? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the... Uh, these are very difficult questions you're giving us and fair enough, you know, fair enough. I think, you know, that's one of the... You know, one of the things that in clinically that, that, you know, nurses and so forth have to, you know, think about a lot because we're, you know, dealing with people who are, you know, in this situation all the time. I mean, my, so I, I, so look, the, the, the very short answer is 
I don't think there's a, a, a given right or a wrong uh, like across the board that fits everybody. It's going to depend on those people's relationship with your, your brother, you said, yeah. didn't you? With, with your brother. Um, but I mean, my position with that was always where possible to acknowledge, like, acknowledge whatever truths are there within it. So there is truth within that. There's truth that he's distressed, or there's truth that he's excited, or there's truth that he's, you know, having those, and like to, to engage, like to engage with that on on that emotional level. Uh, I think can be uh, can be like helpful in itself. And then that question of like what we challenge and when we challenge it and how we challenge it depends, I think, so much on his needs at the time and your needs at the time and 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 and, and your relationship. I mean, I don't know if you have. Uh, no, no, I, I wouldn't have anything to add. I think it is. It's a nuanced thing about finding what the best way to, to confront it is for him, and that can mean going along with him sometimes, and it might mean at times you can't do that. But there's no, there's no one bit of advice in that respect. Exactly. We'd add though, like you know, if you are, and perhaps this is the most obvious advice, but I just don't want to walk away and have not said it. If you are concerned about him, like really concerned at some point because of the, you know, these things that he's feeling, that it might put him in danger or put other people in in, in danger. At that point, you know, I would advise so strongly to, you know, to get in touch and seek immediate medical help or to call and is whoever. He, is he in touch with? With he's in touch with doctors. He's in support of living. There's just kind of okay. So yeah. okay, but every now and then, you know, it's a. That you're in that position where you've got someone telling you something which is totally ridiculous, you know, like, mm-hmm. and you said, how, how do you react in that situation? You need to get some yeah. sort of situation to find yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and this is so hard, isn't it, for the loved ones and for the families and for, you know, these experiences, they don't affect just one person, do they, this, so, of course. Of course. So as well as spilling water, I've now broken my mic, so we can't <laughs> destroy anything else. I think we should probably wrap it up. I'm okay. going to thank Nathan again for coming over from Bristol and for for speaking to us in such a helpful way and thank you all um, for coming along as well thanks to the National Centre for Mental Health team and to our hosts um, here as well but thanks Nathan again Thank you We hope you enjoyed this special live episode of Peace of Mind. Thanks again to James and Nathan for a fascinating and engaging discussion on schizophrenia. We highly recommend getting a copy of Nathan's new book Finding and Losing Schizophrenia So thanks for listening and don't forget to rate, subscribe and review the Peace of Mind podcast. If you'd like to see what we've got coming up next, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. (music) 